Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. If you're listening to this on release day, then happy Friday the 13th, too. Speaking of Friday the 13th, 2020 marks the 40th anniversary of the first movie. If you're a fan of Jason and his hockey mask-wearing, machete-wielding antics, well, today is your last Friday the 13th, to properly celebrate the legendary slasher franchise. And if you're in the New Jersey area, and were one of those lucky enough to snag tickets, you're probably doing it in the best way possible. A tour of the real Camp Crystal Lake. It's a real camp, although most of the time it goes by the name of Camp Nobi Bosco, and is typically stalked mostly by unruly Boy Scouts. Crystal Lake Tours, though, has fixed up the camp to provide visitors the authentic Crystal Lake experience. While this year's events are unfortunately sold out, if you'd like to see what they're about, or keep an eye out for next year, check out crystallaketours.com. On the heels of this anniversary, 
It seems only fitting, then, that our travels this week take us to a couple of summer camps in the area we were at last week, Cypress Hills. The Boy Scouts have had a camp in the area since the early days of their organization. It's always been a popular spot for nature activities, after all, and the unique geography and various forms of wildlife provide lots of opportunity to get educated about nature and practice survival skills. Camp would generally run for a few weeks during the summer, full of laughing, running, and playing kids. But there were plenty of other staff that helped bring the place to life. Sure, the counselors helped to corral rampant children, but the managers, maintenance, and kitchen staff were often the unsung heroes behind the scenes, working earlier and later, and often harder, than anyone else. The camp was pretty crude when it first opened. There were some bunkhouses and a collective dining-slash-common area, but no running water or electricity, which meant all of the camp's meals were cooked over an open flame. True camp style. It was during their first year of operation, sometime in the early 1930s. Kids had gathered around the cooking fire, steel camp plates in hand, waiting eagerly for their evening meal. A stew of some kind by the smell of it. They'd been hiking all afternoon and had worked up a serious hunger. The boys chattered and joked as the camp cook tended the fire and stirred the large cast-iron pot suspended over the flames. But as he reached in to put the lid back on, a small flame suddenly ignited, passed from the logs to his clothes. It wasn't clear whether it was his apron or the cooking mitt he wore to protect his hand from hot metal, but what started out as a small nuisance quickly flared into a real problem. The cook's attempt to slap out the flames became more frantic as the fire spread. But the flames were hungrier even than the campers, and they feasted on the days of oil and grease that had accumulated on his clothes. Muttered curses turned to screams for help. But the campers were either but the campers were either too scared or too stunned to do anything. Some began screaming and crying themselves as the now-engulfed man stumbled forward, dropped to the ground, and began to flail about in an attempt to smother the flames. The fire finally started to subside, but so did his movements. The charred husk that lay before them moaned weakly and rolled to one side. It raised a withered, blackened hand and, tendrils of smoke drifting up from its extended finger, pointed accusingly at those around him. From between scorched, cracked lips he wheezed, You little shits! You saw! Watched me catch fire! And did nothing! My death is on your hands! I'll be back for you! All of you! And as the last words tumbled from his lips, his blistered arm thudded to the dirt, his body limp. Stunned silence followed, his words ringing in their ears, as the guilt of what they'd allowed to happen sunk in. 
Now, if you think you know where this story is going, I'm going out on a limb and saying it's probably not what you think. There's no record of a murderous spirit rising from the ashes of bonfires and smiting campers with a rusty kitchen cleaver. Although, admittedly, now that I've said it, it does sound pretty cool. The incident did, however, seem to spawn something even stranger. A couple of years later, a group of hunters had stopped for the night at the camp. It was the off-season, so the camp was closed for the year. Shelter from the elements, easy access to the lake and woods, and a well-used ring of stones for their cook fire. Really, they couldn't have asked for better. They cooked their meal and sat around the fire, sharing tall tales and a few drinks. Eventually, one of the men stood and wandered into the forest to relieve himself. But when he came back, his face was drawn, his expression a mixture of confusion and unease. There's a grave out there, he said. A fresh one, with a blue cross on it. The other men laughed at first, but quickly realized their friend was serious. They all decided to take a look. The grave hadn't been far from the camp, but no matter how hard they scoured the trees, there was no grave to be found, and no blue cross. After giving up the search, none of the hunters gave much thought to the grave again, until three days later, that is. The group quietly slipped through the forest, eyes scanning for the subtle movement of a buck through the branches. They'd caught a glimpse of one only moments earlier, slipping between distant trees. Hearing the snap of branches, one of the hunters paused, sighted down his rifle, and then suddenly, there it was, cresting a small hill just ahead in the break between trees. A magnificent rack of antlers sprouted from its head, seeming in the space between their tines, to form what almost looked like a cross against the bright blue of the sky. The hunter wasn't about to waste his chance at the prize. He fired. As the stag crumpled, fresh blood pouring from the wound in its neck, he realized the sounds that it made weren't right. Even through bubbling blood, they were more articulate than a dying deer, like words. The hunter rushed to his kill to find his friend, bathed in blood, eyes open and staring at the sky overhead. The same friend who, nights earlier, had stumbled across a grave. A grave with a blue cross. That wasn't the only appearance of the blue cross either. Less than a year later, a five-year-old boy claimed to have seen a blue cross in the woods. His family was visiting the park near the scout camp, and while his parents set up their tent and unpacked gear, he'd wandered off to play. When he returned, he reported to his mother that he'd found a cross that had been painted blue in the forest. She patted him calmly on the head and told him not to worry about it. His imagination had been running high since they'd arrived in Cypress Hills, 
and she easily chalked it up to his creativity. Three days later, though, as the family relaxed on the shore of the small lake, her son again mentioned a cross. He had wandered ankle-deep into the lake and seemed fixed on the rocks below the surface. She watched for a moment and then went back to sunbathing. Then there was a soft splash, followed by silence. It took a moment for her to register the strange stillness, and by the time she realized and raced to the waterside, it was too late. It seems every time someone witnesses the blue cross, a countdown begins. They have three days to live. The curse of the burnt man, after all, they say lives in the cross. It was his cross, after all. You see, after they got over the shock of their inaction and the death it caused, about three days after, the scouts and counselors dragged the body into the woods and dug a shallow grave. They covered it with loose soil. Then they constructed a crude cross out of lumber from the camp. But given the horrific turn of events that led them here, the simple wood just didn't seem good enough. So they decided to paint it. They found a bucket back at camp. Paint that they used to paint some trim on the buildings. Paint that matched the color of the scouts' uniforms. A color that represented their scout unit. A beautiful sky blue. The Cypress Hills Boy Scout camp isn't the only camp in the area with a dark past, either. Camp Shagabek lies relatively close by, on the other side of Lake Levin. The camp itself has been around since 1936, but the darkness that surrounds it dates back even further. The most famous haunting, though, is firmly seated in one spot. Cabin number nine. Several spirits seem to call the small structure home, but the sad young couple is by far the most popular and most tragic. It was 1954, and after breaking out of prison in nearby Maple Creek, Elmer was in desperate need of a place to hide. He'd been running on foot and narrowly missed being seen several times before he gained the protection of the deeply forested Cypress Hills. He'd been doing his best to stick to fields and gullies to avoid the deadly gaze of search parties. He was wanted for first-degree murder, after all, for killing his sister-in-law after she inherited the family farm. He'd been in a holding cell, waiting to be transferred to a larger prison, when he saw the opportunity and took it. But now it was getting dark, and the weather had turned. He was getting drenched. He needed to find somewhere to hole up for the night. No doubt the flicker of light through the trees made him nervous at first, but once he realized it was coming from a building rather than the lights of a search party, he moved in for a closer look. A large central building was ringed with smaller ones. 
light spilling warmly from most of the windows. There were children inside. He could hear them laughing and singing and running around. But one of the cabins lay further out from the rest, cast out from the circle of light and warmth, and that cabin seemed abandoned. No lights or noise came from it. Just to be sure, he hid in the shadows and waited, before finally slipping inside. The two counselors had escaped the chaos of the main building, each slipping out unnoticed individually before joining up at the empty cabin. They could barely keep their hands and lips off of each other until they reached the dry seclusion of its interior. And as soon as they did, they began to peel the soaked clothing from each other, bodies steaming in the cool air. As he began to tug her damp shirt up and over her head, he froze. He hadn't heard the door creak open, but the sound of the pouring rain outside had suddenly amplified and silhouetted against the distant firelight spilling through the doorway. They could see a man. They panicked and tried to pull uncooperative clothes back on. It was one of the supervisors. They were busted, and that meant they were about to get fired. As they mumbled sheepish apologies, not wanting to make eye contact with the man, he stepped forward and let the door swing closed behind him. The light through the windows was still at his back, and they couldn't get a good look at his face. But he seemed wrong somehow. His clothing, the way he stood. And he seemed agitated, not angry. Elmer panicked. He couldn't go back, wouldn't go back. These two wouldn't turn him in. He'd make sure of that. Standing still in the doorway as they scrambled to collect discarded clothes, he slowly drew the small blade from his waistband. And before they even realized what he was doing, he'd flown forward and slashed the cold steel, first across one throat and then another. They'd come looking for the couple, he knew. His hiding spot was compromised, and he was covered in their blood. He left the pair on the cabin floor to bleed out in each other's arms, and fled back into the night. Now, I wasn't able to find out what happened to her escaped convict after that, but I'd say he's a dead ringer for his own slasher franchise. The couple, though, well, apparently they never left. And while their story is a tragic one, they found in death what many dream about in life. A summer love that lasts forever. Our first story for the evening comes from Buck Hanno. Buck Hanno grew up on the wide open plains, but eventually stampeded to the wide open ocean of a tropical island, where his writing life is going nowhere slow. On occasion, he has been known to surf wearing his denim cowboy hat. He's the author of the Schlock Zone drive in theater novella, Ratfish. His favorite movie is pretty much any double feature, so long as he has plenty of buttered popcorn 
a bladder-busting soda pop, and his best girl at his side. Children of the night, join me for Buck Hanno's The Really Old Ones, a Tales to Terrify original. Eunice closed her eyes and rocked back in her chair. As her fellow residents continued their stories, each one trying to top the other, the hubbub of their conversation provided enough white noise to keep her thoughts adrift, rather than focused on her own unfortunate situation. I saw it coming first, asserted old man Jenkins, rising from the fitted muck of decay crouched upon our land. Tried to warn my neighbors, I swear. They ignored me, laughing at my claims. Said it was impossible. Said such a thing could never happen. But they were fools. Fools, I tell you. Every single one of them. Eunice heard the quaver of his voice as he continued. Not all of them survived to regret their words. Cosgrove let out a low keen. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. Great. Now that he'd gotten started, he'd be repeating his mantra all the way through supper. At least until he got his pudding for dessert. Addie Fiengold made a shushing noise before picking up on Jenkins' remarks. Don't blame them too much. Who could have conceived of such a thing? When you open the newspaper, you look for the weather. Some sports scores. A few column inches on the latest house fire, string of burglaries or muggins. You peruse a few human interest stories. Maybe the comics. Nobody goes looking for reports about some hideous monster coming to bring the end of the world. A writhing mass of hideous alien growths upon its head, projecting panic and despair with every inarticulate bellow. Not unless you're reading the tabloids. You don't expect that kind of news in rural Florida. Why, it's like something out of those old monster movies. Like Godzilla or The Thing. Or the other one with the tentacled monsters that grab the people from the shadows. You got that, chimed in Martha Ingalls, grabbing you by whatever it can grab hold of, and then bringing you into the black void. It's darkness, it's foul web of power, where it can grow more and more evil and powerful with each passing day while the public remains complacent. The foul deeds done and excused by acolytes and an all-too-willing press explaining away incident after incident, making them seem normal. Even banal. She let out a sigh. If everyone had only known the vile, hideous truth, we could have tried to defend ourselves, defend our country, defend the world. We never even really put up a fight. That's what I most regret. 
Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. Cosgrove had never stopped. His mutterings filled in all the gaps in the conversation, preventing any true silence, any true stop to the gibberings of her companions. Eunice turned the word over in her mind. Gibberings. She imagined it should be pronounced with a soft G, like a J, since it probably had the same derivation as the word gibberish. But it seems so much more fitting to pronounce it with a hard G, like the G in Gibbons. Small, screeching, ape-like creatures. Certainly that is what mankind must have sounded like to that which shall not be spoken, when it arose from the void to lay waste and destruction with jealousy and wrath upon all in its gaze. Mankind was primitive and so easily awed. Throwing what weapons it had aside in an effort to appease the beast with fawning adulation and worship, doing its bidding feeding its gross appetites, deferring to its acolytes, despite their treason to their own kind. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. I lost everything, muttered Martha. Everything. Everyone. She began to sob. Her grunts and wheezes provided a musical counterpoint to Cosgrove's metered lyrics. So did I. So did most, growled Jenkins. But I fought, I tell you. I wasn't going down without doing as much damage as I could. Eunice heard him sniffle, like he had a cold or he was doing his best to fight back tears. Of course, there wasn't much I could do. Not much anyone could do. Not after the beast had gained a foothold on the countryside. Oh, the folks at the university in town, they tried. Students gathered together to combine their voice, chanting as one. Professors pored over old texts that bore witness to repelling such evil in bygone times, but it was to no avail. Its power was, is, immense. The minions held mesmerized by the beast or rabid, unrelenting, and crazed in their devotion. Anyone anywhere who stood in the way was mowed down and trampled by the herd of unholy righteousness. Those few managed to fight hard enough and long enough to garner the beast's attention were annihilated by its gaze, driven to madness or death, or overpower and despair that might never seem to end till their end, sometimes by their own hand. I couldn't fight, not in the traditional way at least, interjected Abby. I don't believe in fighting, you know. Never did. Reason, logic, goodness of mankind, I believed in those things. I thought they could conquer anything. 
even the beast. I mouthed the traditional incantations. I called upon God to defend herself from the foulness besmirching her realm. I put my faith in truth and beauty and I watched them be destroyed by the gathering gloom till I found myself in bleak shadows crying myself to sleep, calling upon a faith that never responded to my plea no matter how much incense I burned or how many sacred texts I recited, no matter how much I repented for the sins of my fellow man. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. Eunice had, of course, heard it all before. She heard it most days. The gibberings of her companions were as rote and repetitious as Cosgrove's mantra. There was nothing new in this place. The same madness. The same anger. Day after day after day. Worse yet, day after day after day had turned into an unrelenting night after night after night with no sign of dawn. Not ever. Not in Broward County and not in the wide world beyond. Everything was clouded with the dim and foul vapor, whether her eyes were opened or closed. She'd long ago stopped participating in the retelling of the stories of the onslaught of the eternal night. It did nothing to heal the wounds of a broken world. And what is madness if not repeating the same thing endlessly and expecting the outcome to be different? But today, the water drip of depressing tales of doom and destruction finally drove her to a new kind of despair. It drove her to declare her sin, to scream out to the world why she had not done more to stop the coming darkness. Eunice flung open her eyes, sat up in her rocker, and she screamed like she had never screamed before, inflaming her vocal cords and those about her. I thought she would save us! God help me! I honestly thought she would win without me! I thought she would save us from the beast! God forgive me! I was wrong! The others stopped talking apparently stunned into true silence for a few moments, though their looks of accusation spoke volumes. She collapsed in despair, falling out of her chair onto the cool linoleum of the floor of Bayview Retirement Home, her voice cracking and raspy between sobs. She completed her confession, tears falling from bloodshot eyes. Repent. Repent. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. Regret. Repent. That was Buck Hanno's The Really Old Ones, as read by David Dark. David is a lover of all things horror. 
from books to video games to TV, film, and podcasts. He currently resides in Ogden, Utah, with his large coven of acolytes, his children. For voice acting-related correspondence, he can be reached via email. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, David. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our second story tonight comes from Deborah L. Davitt. Deborah L. Davitt was raised in Nevada, but currently lives in Houston, Texas with her husband and son. Her poetry has received Reisling, Wharfstar, and Pushcart nominations, and has appeared in over 50 journals, including F&SF and Asimov Science Fiction. Her short fiction has appeared in Galaxy's Edge and Flame Tree anthologies. For more about her work, including her novels, short stories, and her poetry collection, The Gates of Never, visit edaearth.com. You can also contact her on Facebook and Twitter. Links to all of these are in the show notes. Listen with me, children of the night, to Deborah L. Davitt's Two in One, a Tales to Terrify original. Other places in New England celebrated autumn with vibrant fall foliage, but the elms on the Gothic University campus never burst into exuberant crimson. They simply turned brown. Brown as the bricks, as the antique volumes locked inside its library. Dr. Rachel Maldonado had kicked her way through leaf piles since she'd arrived here in Massachusetts 14 years ago. Am I as faded as the leaves? Did I miss my chance to glow autumn gold? She hurried between the physics building and the labs, 
and then sprinted up the steps of the Rochester Medical Building and inside to her office, where two people waited. A woman slumped in a wheelchair and the tall, spare figure of a man. Come in, she told them, unlocking her door. I got the test results. I wish you'd let me take this to Dr. N. No, the woman in the wheelchair raised a shaking hand. No, I bet you don't want him to have any information on you, power over you. But if it's life or death? Dr. N's more qualified than I am in the more esoteric types of disease. You shouldn't let an unpronounceable name cloud your judgment. Rachel fidgeted. It's not racism, the man replied stolidly. You do realize that he's from quite a bit further away than Egypt, yes? Rachel snorted. To think that when I was an undergrad, I thought he was a misogynistic anachronism from the last century. When he became my supervisor, I discovered he was a misogynistic anachronism from 5,000 years ago. To anyone else, that might have sounded like a joke. The pair regarding her didn't blink, though the man's lips lifted in the ghost of a smile. Rachel found herself returning the expression, then wiped her face of emotion. He has centuries of experience, it's true, the woman in the wheelchair whispered. But we know which gods he follows. We can't take the risk of being drawn to their attention. Rachel grimaced. She'd so far gotten along at the university without swearing allegiance to any factions or gods, but that didn't mean that she wasn't aware of the chapels under the fraternity houses. She made a point of taking a rotation in the campus clinic during freshman rush each year to patch up the kids who hadn't made it through the blood rites of Alpha Zeta Alpha or the ritual hunts of Chi Tau Upsilon. She'd asked shivering girls under blankets if they'd signed a waiver before going to the Tau Sigma Alpha Mixer, and most importantly, if they'd read it. Their families would bluster about litigation, and then campus security would intervene, and the families and the washed-out freshmen would leave, glassy-eyed and with no memories of what had transpired. Rachel hated the policy of employing amnesiac spells but a surprising number of families didn't know what Gothic was really about when their kids applied here. She'd been one of them, once. Dr. N almost certainly suspects whom our family represents, the man put in quietly. But there's a detente here. We all go about our business, doing our best not to interfere with each other. Needful work gets done. Grant money comes in on time. You understand. His eyes warmed slightly as he regarded her. As members of the Board of Trustees, you know where the bodies are buried, literally. Rachel bit her lip. I've signed my non-disclosure agreements, she replied carefully. I adhere to them. But I have no experience with esoteric ailments. I deal with biochemistry. We're hoping that you'll have answers that magic can't provide. I have no answers, only questions you won't like. The man pushed the wheelchair past the door. Rachel noted the premature gray in his hair, and her lips tightened as she remembered how they'd all met. Hello, Rumi. Cheerful voice, heavy Boston Brahmin accent. 
Rachel spun and blinked, looking slightly up at the pale blonde woman currently offering her a hand to shake. I'm Amanda Rochester. Nice to meet you. Strong features to match the accent, like a young Catherine Hepburn, down to the conservative sweater and corduroy jeans. Rochester? Like the medical building? Rachel asked. Her roommate's face fell. Exactly like the medical building, Amanda replied, sounding glum. Mother and father put down the endowment for it ten years ago. Rachel's mouth fell open. Um, sorry, she ventured, feeling New York and crass. That was supposed to be a joke. Amanda relaxed and looked out into the hall. Michael, don't lurk out there. Come in. Rachel, this is my twin brother. She found her hand engulfed by a larger one and had looked up at a gangly boy of 18 who gave her a horsey, pleasant smile. So, what dire sins have you committed to be sent here? He asked jovially. Rachel thought about the cramped apartment back home, her brothers getting on her nerves, the language on the street shifting from Italian to Ukrainian overnight. Only place that offered me a scholarship. Their eyes widened. You're here by choice? Amanda asked, flopping into a chair. We wanted Stanford. The further away from Boston and our parents, the better, Michael added glumly, taking a seat on a desk. Most places we applied sent letters suggesting that an endowment might open their doors. He sounded disgusted. And we can't touch a penny of our trust till we're 22. So, here we are. At least I get an interesting roommate out of it, Amanda added, a hundred-watt smile. Maybe even a friend? Not knowing what else to say, Rachel nodded. Sure, friends. Say, what do you want to major in? Amanda laughed. Archaeology. I want to travel to ruins so old they make Egypt look young. Mother says studying Hyperborean is a waste of time, though. She sighed. Hyper-what? Old-fashioned way of saying Proto-Indo-European, Michael answered lazily, leaning back. Some people think that they've found inscriptions in it, which might confirm how linguists have reconstructed it. He shrugged. Dusty and boring. Amanda sniffed. For you, maybe. I plan to travel. To study sites like Gobegli Tepes that defy our notion of where civilization began. Study cities 10,000 years old, buried beneath the Mediterranean, covered by the sea as the polar ice melted. Michael looked at Rachel. Her professors will spend the next four years telling her that there are no cities older than time to be found, as a matter of simple logic. Rachel blinked at his direct, amused regard. And what are you studying? Michael grinned. I am a useless parasite on existence. Music. Don't let him fool you, Amanda said fondly. He's good. Our teachers used to talk about him becoming a concert violinist. But of course, our parents... Four years to freedom, Michael returned, his tone no longer lazy. He sent Rachel a glance. Hey, want us to tell you which fraternities to avoid? I wouldn't mind, she replied laughing. I can take care of myself, but it'd help to know which of them sacrificed virgins at the full moon. The twins exchanged a glance. Moon dark, Amanda corrected meticulously. And only in November. I recommend that if you are a virgin, you get yourself disqualified by then. Like, thoroughly. 
Some years, they're desperate enough that they'll hunt down even a demi-virgin. There are reasons that the teen STD rate is astronomical for the surrounding counties. Rachel's mouth fell open. As jokes go, that's a really bad one. Michael sighed. I guess you didn't get the real information packet. Come on, we'll take you around and tell you the stuff that didn't make it into the application flyers that they blanket the East Coast with every year. Rachel had given them both a look, but had listened as they walked her around campus, wondering if this was, in fact, some sort of joke. After less than an hour, she'd heard panicked screams from one sorority basement, however, and witnessed a boy her own age stagger down the steps, wearing horns on his head and clutching a bloody groin, only to have campus security converge on him and carry him back inside the dorm, where the screams had resumed. Around then, admitting that she was a virgin and asking Michael out of earshot of his sister if he might like to disqualify her had sounded like a great idea. You haven't been forthcoming with what you know about the illness, Rachel told them, taking a seat as Michael wrapped Amanda in another blanket. The woman could barely raise her head from the padded roll at the back of the wheelchair, but her eyes remained alert. We're looking at multiple organ failure. Rachel continued. Michael, your results are better than Amanda's, but it's still the same downhill curve. She swallowed, aching inside at having to say those words to him. You've come to me for help, in spite of everything in our past, and I'm adrift. I ran a DNA sequence on the both of you, she added. Michael's head snapped up. We didn't request that. I'm not telling anyone what I found. Doctor-patient confidentiality. Honestly, I've seen stranger things. She looked away. The first time I tested a sample given to me with nothing but an identifier code on it, and it came back showing a three-stranded helix, I got a clear idea of why none of my papers can ever be published in The Lancet. Oh, there's Panacotic Quarterly or the Xanthu Review, but no one outside the occult circles reads those. She made a rude noise. Michael cleared his throat. Well, the NSA gets copies directly from the university, actually. So, someone does if it makes you feel better. You're on the board. You'd know. Rachel exhaled. I should have known. She rubbed her eyes. How you've changed, Michael. How we all have. When she had asked him to disqualify her, Michael laughed, flushed. Can I at least buy you dinner first, he asked. And afterwards, he kept asking her out, to her surprised pleasure. She'd initially teased him about slumming, which had made his face close down, so she'd apologized, and they'd started dating regularly. But there was something off-putting in the way Amanda stared at them, the frown lines crinkling between her brows. Michael passed it off with a wave. She's worried what our parents will say. That I'm after your money? She asked, disheartened. I know you're not. But the trust becomes accessible in a few years. And once I'm done with my degree here, I'm out. West Coast. Hell, Australia. Maybe you could do med school at University of Sydney. What do you say? He offered her a bite from his ice cream cone. Rachel's mouth fell open. You're asking me to go with you? Eh, apply. See if you get in. A quick smile and a kiss that tasted like ice cream and promises. You worry about the grades and the MCATs. 
I might be in a position to help with the financials. He gave her a serious look. Maybe we can get away with running away. You're going to tell Amanda you're kidnapping me with my permission, she teased. A flicker of an expression. She needs to find her own path. If she's smart, she'll hide in Tibet and never come home again. How can your parents be that bad? She'd wanted to ask. But their life in Boston was a closed book. And as everyone learned at Gothic sooner or later, there were books that should remain closed and unread. What did our DNA tell you? Amanda whispered. Rachel hesitated. That you have so many recessive genes and share so many gene clusters that it can only be the result of systematic inbreeding. Boston Brahmins do intermarry substantially, Amanda rasped. Not like this, Rachel returned, putting her hands on the desk between them. The results look like some time travel story in which you are your own grandparents. You aren't, are you? She gave them a sharp look. I don't have access to the high-energy physics building, but I hear what goes on in there. Their faces had gone blank. It's not that, Michael finally replied. This is what mother died of, and father. His voice turned harsh, sounding exactly like his father's had long ago. You've seen the symptoms before. By their senior year, Michael still hadn't introduced her to their parents, though he'd met hers. She'd suggested getting an apartment together off campus, that they could just manage it on her scholarship without recourse to his parents or trust. And he'd said yes, after the semester break. Test case for Sydney or Stanford, he'd joked. She returned to the dorm she still shared with Amanda on an unseasonably warm September afternoon. A blast wave of heat hit her as she opened the door. Amanda had cranked the accordion-shaped steam heater by the window to full and huddled beside it, wrapped in blankets, though it was nearly 90 degrees outside. What's the matter? Rachel asked, alarmed. Touched her friend's sweating face and realized that Amanda was actually cold to the touch. Call Michael, Amanda slurred. Tell him, helicopter, Beacon Hill House. Mind whirling through dozens of symptoms already memorized for the MCAT, Rachel called Michael. I wish you'd let me take you to the campus clinic, Rachel muttered as Michael arrived. No, don't trust them. They use voodoo down there. Amanda's teeth chattered. I'm fairly sure that they're at least advanced enough to offer trepanning, Rachel had deadpanned, but neither twin had smiled. Michael made the call, but pulled Rachel off to the side to ask, Could it be hypochondria? Rachel stared at him. Her heart beats erratic, and she's three degrees below normal body temperature. You can't fake this. She could have overdosed on something, maybe? She darted a glance back over her shoulder and then hissed. Why would you think this is a put-on? First, mother's sick. They claim she's dying, Michael replied tautly. And second, I bought you an engagement ring yesterday, and Amanda's been pissed at me ever since. He sighed and pulled the box out of his pocket, offering it to her. Hell of a way to ask you, he added, shaking his head. Her mouth dropped open, but she let him put the ring on her finger minutes before dark-suited men arrived at the door with a gurney. Men who spirited them out of the dorm and got them aboard a helicopter bound for Boston. During the flight, she'd managed to regain her wits enough to ask, So, what's your mother sick with? A family ailment, she claims. 
I think she's timed it to coincide with our birthday in the next month, to prevent us from making plans to leave. Michael drummed his fingers on the window. Amanda, on the gurney next to them, turned her face towards them. She's always said that she was going to die of this, she slurred, and that so would we. That's a hell of a thing to tell a child, Rachel thought, stunned. Then her rational side kicked in. If every generation dies of this disease, it must be terribly recessive. So they say, Michael's voice grated. Amanda drifted in and out of consciousness for the rest of the flight. Periodically, she gabbled delirious, fragmentary sentences. I see myself. I'm a baby, but I'm holding myself. I see myself so many times, watching myself grow up, knowing I'm going to die, but I won't die. I'll never die. I'll just be born again. Then she shifted languages, some of the syllables hinting just at the edge of familiarity. Meme, fater. Breter, Sanu, you, Suesor, Eter, Dugter, Duosem, Oinos. Then the mansion on Beacon Hill, impossibly old with a cobbled streets outside and a smell of musty antiques and wood polish. Michael defiantly introduced her as his fiancée, garnering a single tired look from his father. And then she watched as Amanda was wheeled straight to her mother's bedside both of them shivering in unison as they clasped hands on the counterpane. And then, her mother sighed her last, and Amanda lowered her head, weeping. After that, Rachel sat uncomfortably in the dining room with Amanda, who seemed mostly recovered and not at all tearful over her mother's death. Listening to their father shout at Michael, the words indistinguishable through a thick wood-paneled door, the walls shuddering with reverberations. I'm sorry for all the trouble, Amanda told her, her voice distance. The, we never should have involved you in this. It's a family thing. Rachel stared at her. Michael asked me to marry him. I said yes. Pretty soon I'll be part of your family. Don't slam the door in my face. She swallowed. What's wrong with her? An hour ago you were delirious, and now you're sitting here like nothing's happened? Amanda picked up a bag of knitting beside her chair, finding a place in the loops and pearls as if she'd just set it aside moments before. There's no one else who's our family but us. I wish it weren't so, my dear, but that's how it's always been. In her haze of anger at this verbal slap, this outright rejection by a friend with whom she'd lived for four years, the condescending my dear, Rachel didn't realize till later that she'd never seen Amanda knit. At that moment, the door to the study flew open and Michael stormed out, catching her by the hand. Let's go, he told Rachel. We're leaving. You won't even stay for the funeral? Amanda asked. Michael glared. If what father just told me is true, then there's no need for one, is there? And I might as well find some joy before it's all taken away. You're really going to leave me? Amanda asked, her tone suddenly pleading. If you leave now with her... You're going to regret it, his father warned from the doorway, particularly when you remember. He gave Rachel a weary stare. No offense, miss, but you're unlikely to understand our particular family circumstances. Fuming, she'd left with Michael. 
and for two glorious years, they'd been married. They hadn't quite managed to make it to Australia, but Stanford had been acceptably far away. Until the morning he'd woken up shivering and cold, dazed with fever dreams, he told her to phone his sister, and a private jet had taken them back to Boston, where his father lay dying. She hadn't been prepared for the divorce papers, which his father had waiting in his desk drawer. She hadn't been prepared for the look of anguished apology in Michael's eyes as he handed them to her. She'd raged at him for an explanation, which he'd tried to provide fumblingly. Only two children of my family's line ever survived infancy. My parents tried to have other children over the years. Every one of them died. That's why they set up the grant for the medical center. I can't put you through that. You'll never want for anything. I'll make sure of it. You'll never have to work again if you don't want to. She'd cried. She'd raged. I don't want the money. We don't need to have children. All I want is you, our life back, the way it was. With you playing violin in the spare room with the door closed so you wouldn't distract me while I'm studying, and going to concerts, and life being normal. But in spite of the misery in his eyes, his word had been as final as the grave in which they'd placed his father's corpse. She'd gone back to med school. When she graduated, the only place she could find for residency that covered the bills was Arkham Hospital. And then, grant money had materialized at Gothic for research in endocrinology, her initial specialty. She'd run into Amanda on campus once or twice in the first years. Amanda, now a member of the Board of Trustees, had also been teaching ancient languages. And after that, more grants and more and more esoteric and occult matters. The growing suspicion that Area 51 and Little Gray Men were just a smokescreen to keep people from realizing that aliens had visited Earth millions of years before humans had crawled down from the trees. That they might even still be there, dozing in the recesses of the Earth, godlike in their power, and that humanity had a vested interest in never letting them wake. Amanda had come to her office in the medical research building four years ago wearing a dress that must have been culled from her grandmother's trunks in the attic, asking for a consultation on in vitro fertilization. It's not my specialty, Rachel deflected. Amanda's expression didn't thaw. It's closer than you might think. You've been working with more, uh, esoteric research of late. Rachel grimaced. You know about that? She didn't use spells, but she studied the results of them documented them scientifically and without bias. Her more eldritch colleagues had initially laughed, but they'd come to value her statistical analyses of their work. Apparently, it helps to quantify how much more effective virgin's blood is than I of Newt. Which harmonic chants and unspeakable names have a statistically meaningful relationship with the desired effect? Amanda's lips thinned. I know which grants you've been offered. And why? A pause, then anger twisted her lips. I wish you'd have just let him settle a nice alimony on you. Instead, we get to relive the whole sordid affair every six months when you're up for grant renewal. Sordid, Rachel repeated, rage boiling inside of her. He was my husband. I loved him. And then you and your precious family yanked him back by his chain. 
You have a goddamned odd way of asking for my help, Amanda. I've earned every one of my grants. The peer reviews I get tell me that much, so you can get your ass out of my office and don't even threaten me with removing my funding. She glared at Amanda, whose mouth had just opened. I will go four doors down the hall to Dr. N, and we'll see how fast the rest of the board turns on you. Rachel wrapped her desk. Get out! Amanda hissed in vexation. I apologize for my choice of words, she finally replied. However, I really do need your assistance in the matter of in vitro fertilization. And in a way, my current predicament is your fault. Rachel laughed out loud. My fault, she asked incredulously. My fault that you can't find a guy willing to do the deed with you? My fault that the lucky guy doesn't have solid swimmers? That you're infertile? How can your lack of fertility be my fault? Amanda glared at her. It's your fault, she snapped, that the man in question won't do what's required. My God, she's a lunatic. How are we ever friends? Why has she been so damned spiteful since her mother's death? Rachel evened her tone into a semblance of professionalism. I can't be your personal physician, Amanda. Conflict of interest. Please leave. And then Amanda had stormed out. Rachel's grant renewal that year had been subjected to even more scrutiny than usual, including having to defend her work before the full board, including Michael and Amanda. But she'd still received funding nevertheless. And Michael had come to her office afterwards, apologized for his sister's behavior. So proper, so correct, and yet with so much pain in his eyes that she'd offered quietly. Would you let me take you out for dinner? And he'd said yes, someplace off campus, out of sight. That and every other lovely evening since had felt illicit, like an affair. No promises ever made so that they couldn't hurt each other by breaking them. Just what time they could steal with each other. And yet, here we are again with lies and mysteries and everything else in between us. Yes, Michael, I've seen the symptoms before. Twice. Rachel tapped her fingers, trying not to let her anguish show on her face. Amanda and your mother showed identical symptoms ten years ago. Your mother died of it. Amanda didn't. You and your father showed identical symptoms eight years ago. Your father died of it. You did not. She felt her lips thin. Oh, and there's something else. The genetic tests tell me that the man you called father was actually your uncle. She could see Amanda's lips compress, see the lie born before she could even part them to give forth speech. Michael's face went chalky. Rachel raised a hand, forestalling any words. The DNA tells a truth that neither of you has ever been capable of expressing. Not when we were friends, not when Michael was my husband. Or my lover, so quietly in the past few years. She exhaled. It's also fairly evident that your grandparents were also siblings. Also, your great-grandparents. The world hasn't seen this level of inbreeding since the pharaohs. Rachel looked away. No one's our family but our family. She paraphrased Amanda's long-ago words to her. Except that it's killing you, she sighed. It's not even your fault, she added as gently as she could. Maybe this is why he didn't want children. He didn't want to pass on all these defective genes. You didn't choose to be born like this. We did, Michael said, his voice bleak. 
they did. It's the same thing, really. In spite of everything, she reached across the desk, touched his hand which had wrung music from a violin so sweetly for her, saw Amanda stiffen in her chair, anger sparking in her eyes. It's not the same thing, Rachel insisted. You're your own person. No, I'm not. I'm him. He's me. It's, it's not just genetic. It's esoteric. Michael turned his hand to cradle hers. And it's been that way for 10,000 years. You asked if we were our own grandparents. Yes, but not through some improbable accident of time travel. He hunched forward, looking ashamed. Wait, what? Shouldn't tell her this. Amanda's voice was a rasp. She deserves to know, and she can't help it if she doesn't have the information. Harsh tone. Rachel, 10,000 years ago, we were priests, shaman and shamaness. Tiny tribe, no more than 40 people. Mammoth hunters, if you'd believe it. He shook his head, his eyes blank. We worshipped a nature goddess, and she was very real. Is, Amanda corrected vehemently before coughing. She is very real. Michael shrugged. You haven't reached for a Thorazine needle yet, Rachel. Rachel swallowed. He's got to be kidding. And yet, there's so much conviction in his voice. You don't sound delusional, she allowed cautiously. I'm aware of the gods worshipped in the underground chapels, and I've seen a few things here. She paused reflecting on the monstrosities kept in the freezers of the lab down the hall. She swallowed. Ten thousand years? They're older than Dr. N. He nodded wearily. Our tribe crossed into territory held by people who worshipped another of the old ones, one whose name we shouldn't say. He exhaled. They came after us in the night, with terrible creatures that could change form, Dead fish eyes, tentacles, you know how it is. I'd never seen an ocean before. Rachel twitched, imagining the creatures in the lab freezer in their living state, advancing on primitives armed with spears and slings. You'd have been helpless. So many of them, Amanda whispered. The sounds as they moved across the rock like someone sucking marrow out of a bone. She closed her eyes. That's what I always remember. Michael nodded, looking sick. By morning, they'd killed every member of our tribe. Some they ate in a ritual feast. Others, the bodies, they rose up as new servants. They'd left us till last, which was when our goddess intervened. She led us out of the cave through passages we'd never seen before and told us that we would be her servants eternally to fight against these interloper gods. A bitter snort. I thought it was an honor at the time. Something in the almost prosaic delivery impelled belief. So when you say you are your own grandfather, he closed his eyes. We didn't know, he whispered. We had twins the first year after our tribe died. And when they grew up strong and healthy and we grew older and weaker, it was just the way things were, until the sickness came, and they touched our hands, and then we were looking at our own dead faces. It was a shock. I'd never seen my own face before, 
Amanda whispered. Not in anything more than a wavering pool. Rachel froze. So you overwrote them? You erased your own children? No, Amanda whispered. We are them. Continuous chain of consciousness. I remember everything from every incarnation, earliest childhood to the moment of transition. Rachel closed her own eyes now. So many things make sense now. So when you were delirious and babbling about seeing yourself as a baby, holding myself in my arms, so many of myself, Amanda's voice was empty, and so many other children who didn't live, the firstborn survive, any others wither. Several times we almost didn't make it, Michael admitted. The Black Plague killed our adult selves when our younger selves were only toddlers. Imagine coming to full adult awareness inside a body just out of swaddling, and when half the people in your village lie dead and rotting in their houses. He sounded sickened by the memory. Rachel's natural skepticism kicked in. So you've had children together, generation after generation. After the first five generations, the inbreeding should have rendered the offspring unviable. Michael looked down. Our goddess, whose voice I haven't heard in some 300 years, didn't allow for other children. Every time we've lain with people who aren't us, the miscarriages. If the pregnancy comes to term, the children of those unions sicken and die in infancy. Guilt in his eyes as he regarded her, knowing that I was the cause of their deaths, of their mother's grief, I couldn't. Not anymore. Except my younger self doesn't usually remember. At least, at least modern birth control spared you that much. She swallowed. But that doesn't explain how the chain has continued. Consciousness transfer, Amanda whispered. Every five generations or so, we find a new host body for one of us and pass into them. We should just let ourselves die, Michael said, looking away, his hands still wrapped around Rachel's on the desk. Why should we keep protecting the old secrets, the old portals, fighting the same dark gods who've been using humanity as toys since before we were born? What makes us more worthy of living than the person into whose body we pass? Amanda regarded him, her eyes hooded. You say that every hundred years or so. You never follow through. You can never just let me die. You love me. You need me. She sighed. Left it very late this time. Rachel stiffened and jerked her hand back, but Michael kept his fingers locked around hers. Oh no, she told them, digging in her heels. I am not going to be your host. Amanda hitched forward in her chair. Hold her steady, she told Michael. No, Michael replied, his eyes still locked on Rachel's. Much as I would love to be with you, inside your mind forever, it doesn't work that way. And I'm done with this. His voice sounded empty and tormented at once. I'd like 
what little time I have left to be spent with someone I love, if she'll have me. No, Amanda hissed. You're mine. We're forever. Duosem oinos. And I don't want to go. She lunged for Rachel's hand even as the doctor jerked back, panicking. I can't let her touch me. Screaming. Screaming inside of her skull as memories burned their way into synapses not meant for them. Confused, distant images of Michael trying to knock his sister away. The frail, fragile body collapsing to the rug before the transference was complete. Two voices shrieking inside her, her mind buckling under the onslaught of 10,000 years of experience. Life after life, looking into her own eyes, watching herself die again and again. The only thing pulling her through it, the beacon of him, husband, son, brother, like a watchfire on the heights of a cliff over a dark and endless sea. He's mine and I'm his. We're two in one. Nothing comes in between us. Oh, how they'd tried. They'd tired of each other and tried to move on to other people and other lives. And how she'd hated those women he'd taken to his bed. But it never worked. And then they'd come back together again, in need and in fear and in love and in hate. How often he'd slumped, unwilling to go on, saying that the secrets of a goddess who no longer existed except in them couldn't be worth so many lives sacrificed for their continuance. And yet, he was never able to let her die, any more than she could let him. If I must take a new body, it'll be that of an enemy, he declared, and she'd raged at him. Why punish me by taking a face that I despise? Because I won't sacrifice a decent person for my survival, at least take a complete stranger. Someone we don't know? Someone who could be poxed? Are you mad? Not her, Michael raged as Amanda sat up, looking down at the healthy curves of her new body. Not someone I love. You left it so late this time, Amanda repeated, seeing in him his father's self and his grandfather's self and all the others whose names slowly dwindled in memory. Edward, Andrew, Charles, back to Rothgar, back to when it was Gar. Gar and Britta, two and one. Her mind was stronger than any of the others. A stab of guilt hit her then. She was a friend. But all the voices of the past clamored. She tried to steal him from us. She almost killed us. Weakened him. He wouldn't continue the line. He wouldn't plant the seed. The goddess demands and we obey. She had to go. Michael, Gar, covered his face. She hated him for his weakness and loved him for it. And she always did. She smiled, feeling the unfamiliar curve of the new lips. Taking her body was the right thing to do, she said, trying to believe it. You still desire her. Doing what's necessary shouldn't be that bad now, should it? She instantly regretted her words as his head jerked up. A look of rage she hadn't seen since the 16th century, when he'd fought Landsnecht and pillaging their fields. I could have a body for twenty dollars in any back alley, Gar growled. I loved her mind, her soul, which you've destroyed. He turned and left, ignoring every spluttered word she sent after his back. Brenna refused to chase after him like a whipped dog. Instead, 
she took purposeful strides to stand beside her old corpse. It's all right, she told the broken form. He'll be back, she hesitated. He always comes back. That was Deborah L. Davitt's Two in One, as read by Sarah Mayra. Sarah Mayra is a native New Yorker who currently resides much closer to the Mason-Dixon line than she ever thought possible. When not spending time with her husband and two teenagers, she can be found listening to horror podcasts or doing yoga to de-stress from listening to horror podcasts and living with two teenagers. Thank you, Sarah. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we awaken ancient evils with more Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.